The latest COVID spike sends restaurant operators reaching for the closed signs again. And I'll talk with Cranes reporters Danny Ecker and Ali Marotti about McDonald's ousted CEO Steve Easterbrook's severance package and the future of the Thompson Center. You could make the case that the news of the Thompson Center here is probably the best the most positive news for the central loop in a long, long time, you know, at least since the beginning of the pandemic, maybe, maybe, you know, before that. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, December 20th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. If you're new to Crane's Daily Gist, welcome. This is my favorite part of the week. We get together with two Cranes journalists for a big picture conversation about their beats. Often there's an intersection with the stories they're pursuing. They might even question each other. Our conversations always end with three stories outside of their beats that caught their attention. And I'll have three of my own. Today I have Cranes reporters Ali Marotti and Danny Ecker with me. So Ali, you have been continually reporting on issues at McDonald's, most recently about ousted CEO Steve Easterbrook and his severance package. And Danny, you've been reporting on the future of the Thompson Center. Both of those are, I feel like we should take a deep breath first. Both of those are pretty meaty stories. Um, Allie, let's start with you. Tell us the latest with uh, Easterbrook. Yeah, for sure. So this has been an ongoing saga. If you remember back in late 2019, um, Steve Easterbrook, then the CEO of McDonald's, was ousted for a consensual relationship that he had with an employee that violated company policy. So he was terminated then, and he got this pretty big severance package. And so then a few months later, McDonald's ended up filing a lawsuit against Easterbrook, trying to peel back some of that severance package. So the news today was that Easterbrook and McDonald's settled that lawsuit. As a result, Easterbrook agreed to return $105 million in cash and equity awards, which they said, you know, would have been what he didn't get had he been truthful at the time of his termination. There were some arguments about, you know, well, he covered up and he lied, and so he shouldn't have gotten this big severance package. So the saga may not be over. You know, this is something that McDonald's today, when they put out a statement about this, they were sort of saying this ends a painful chapter and helps us not drag out legal proceedings. But there are still other lawsuits kind of surrounding this. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how the rest of those play out. And then that's not all that's going on with McDonald's. There's a lot of conversation around discrimination and, and issues like that, too. Yeah, absolutely. So that's been really interesting to watch. You know, I've been covering McDonald's for 14 or 15 months now, and this has been a conversation that's been going on the entire time I've been covering them. A lot of it, I think, spurred by what we saw in the summer of 2020. You know, just a lot of different people, consumers, shareholders, et cetera, holding corporations accountable for their diversity and inclusion. Uh, what we've seen with McDonald's is that they've had several lawsuits from Black franchisees um, alleging discrimination and discriminatory practices against them. So today, McDonald's announced that they settled one of those. There was a former pro baseball player named Herb Washington. He filed this lawsuit in Ohio back in February. 
he at the time owned 13 restaurants and you know i spoke to him back when he filed the lawsuit and he was telling me that at one point you know he owned the most restaurants out of any black franchisee in the system um, and he kind of went into the details in the lawsuit about how he felt he was being steered in a discriminatory way to not succeed as a franchisee. Uh, however, today they settled that lawsuit and McDonald's paid Washington $33.5 million for 13 of his locations. Not quite sure what happened with that 14th one. That's something I'm still trying to figure out. In exchange for settling the lawsuit and buying those restaurants, Washington agreed to dismiss the lawsuit and exit McDonald's system. So it's sort of interesting to see that twice in one day, McDonald's has managed to kind of settle, tamp down these different lawsuits. There was another lawsuit, I, I believe it was just last week I reported on, from other Black franchisees that had made similar allegations, and that lawsuit was dropped as well. You know, at the same time, we're seeing McDonald's make a lot of promises and set a lot of goals about expanding their diversity and equity practices. You know, throughout the past year, they've made promises such as tying executive pay to diversity goals. Just very recently, they said that they were going to expand a recruitment effort to try to expand the amount of franchisees they have that identify as underrepresented groups. You know, and then just last month, we saw the current CEO, Chris Kamsinski, kind of came under fire for a text message he exchange he had with Mayor Lori Lightfoot regarding um, two shootings of you know, children that happened in the city. He took heat over that and he apologized for it. But and it seems to have kind of died down a little bit. But it's just interesting to me that there's all these things keep happening. You know, as soon as they make one announcement about bettering diversity and inclusion, there's something else that goes on, whether it's a lawsuit or a scandal or something along those lines. So I think it'll be interesting to take a look back in a few months and see what progress they've truly made and just work on holding them accountable for all those goals they've set. That Kimzinski story, I feel like that was months ago already. There've been so many McDonald's headlines. I was like, oh, that was November. That already feels like June, but no, that was just a month ago. I know. It's insane. I was pulling up some of the clips today and had that same thought like, oh, wow, <laughs> that felt like months ago, but it was not. Okay, Danny, uh, over to you. Let's talk about the Thompson Center. Another thing that you have been reporting on for quite a while, just about its future, what it might look like. And now you know a lot more. Tell me. Big, big, big news for the Thompson Center and for The Loop. You could make the case that the news of the Thompson Center here is probably the best, the most positive news for the Central Loop in a long, long time. You know, at least since the beginning of the pandemic, maybe, maybe you know, before that. So it was a bit of a surprise. We had a, a veteran Chicago developer named Mike Reschke. No one really knew this was exactly happening, but he stood by with Governor Pritzker uh, last week and said he's uh, going to be negotiating a deal now with the state to buy the Thompson Center, which there was there was a question. Obviously, many people know the state has been trying to sell the Thompson Center for several years now, and that seemed like a little bit of a long shot anyway in terms of what it was going to be turned into, who was going to buy it. But it made it seem even like a longer shot to have someone put the money up for this and come up with a plan for it during the pandemic when, you know, what what was the use? What's the future of downtown look like? So it was a it was a bit of a stunner when you saw Mike Reschke come out and say, yep, here's our plan. Here's what we want to do to it. And, you know, the big takeaway at first was we don't want to knock it down. We want to keep it. We want to turn it into something new, give it a new life. So that was a, the big, big deal. Now, you know, there's still months of negotiating and finalizing this deal to get done. But the highlights are that Reschke's group wants to basically 
gut the building. I mean, keep the steel structure of it, but put an entirely new curtain wall. It's going to look very different from the outside and put a new interior curtain wall in the atrium. As many people know that building so that, you know, when you actually be in the office space in the building, you will sort of be in space that does not have an exposure to this giant atrium that has noises and smells and everything else that comes with it. And then a big piece of the deal is that while Reschke's group is going to buy the Thompson Center and see if you can follow this uh, for $70 million, they're then going to renovate the office space. And then the state is going to buy back more than 400,000 square feet on the lower floors, which it will own for its offices. And it's going to be paying at least $148 million. So follow that. So the state is paying Mike Reschke's group $78 million at least to say, here, get this off our hands. The reason is, as many people who have followed the Thompson Center know, this was very expensive. It's it's a very you know inefficient and outmoded building that has not been updated and not been up, you know, kept very well. And it was costing the state a lot of money to hold on to it. They didn't need as much space. So they're willing to you know pay to have someone take it off their hands. And obviously, Reschke and his group will then be putting more money into the building and taking another 575 or 550,000 square feet uh, of offices on the upper floors that they are going to say, well, we believe we can find new users for it. So that's a huge deal when you think about the potential that this had for the building to just be this white elephant and sitting maybe empty or sparsely populated in the center of downtown when the city needs a, a, a jolt of, of, of positivity, of activity, of people down there. If this comes together and if it's finalized, because I, I think you could still, there's some who question whether this will all be finalized, it would be a great you know, bit of positivity for, for the central loop, which again, we haven't seen in a while. Sure. What kind of timeline is attached to this if it goes through? Reschke's group and the state are hoping to have a deal done to sell the building by March. And then Reschke had said that within 12 months, uh, you know, so call it by the end of 2022, let's say, he was hoping to start construction work. And then it would be about a two-year construction period, and it would basically be redoing those offices on the lower floors for the state and doing that, you know, curtain wall, the new glass that would be around the building and then later doing the uh, upper parts of the building. So, you know, talking about reasonably 2024, potentially, for it to be completed. But again, that's that's all kind of the, the tentative plan he had set out, and, and we'll see. And I can't help but wonder, too, about what the plan is for minimal disruption. I mean, you have CTA lines going there. You have the very excellent Express DMV where you can actually get a driver's license in under a full day. You know, you have a lot of offices. You have a lot going on there. What about all of that? They were not allowed to interrupt the CTA. That was part of this deal was they had to, someone had to come in and buy it without interrupting CTA service or closing that station. It's one of the busiest stations in the system. The the DMV and the retail portion overall is is actually still an outstanding question. For the last few years, there's been a lawsuit. All that retail space on the ground floor is actually controlled by a couple real estate investors that have a, a master lease. So, and and they that runs through twenty thirty four. There's a pending lawsuit over that. So, the you know you would presumably think that as part of this deal, that would be figured out. Uh, Reschke has basically said that he will you know he under his plan he would have control of that retail space. So you know I, that's that's part of what he 
I'm sure a big part of what he wants to do because he wants to have the amenities in this building. He also is talking about how, you know, this is this is basically, you know, the, the, the hole that many people see, first of all, um, when you walk in the front entrance of, of the Thompson Center would effectively be filled in. This would be kind of like a level grade. You wouldn't have, you know, be able to look down there and they would make it sort of a, almost that that atrium becomes more of like an event venue um, that they want, that he wants it to be able a striking atrium as a, you know, that's, he just thinks it's sort of an underutilized asset that you have this beautiful 17 story atrium and it doesn't really serve a purpose other than sort of visually. Um, so trying to use that, uh, you know, have the, the below ground stuff, you know, uh, you know, other, whether it's a food court or other amenities that would be there. And then just redoing a lot of the interior of that atrium, um, with, with, you know, he, he called this like the hanging gardens of Babylon. That was like with, you know, a lot of like nature and vines and covering up a lot of the glass and metallic structures and some in, interior, uh, on the, like the elevator with, with like white marble. I mean, there's, there's a whole vision that he has here to, really change the feel of the building and that it would include most likely, you know, a change to potentially some of the tenants that would be in there on the lower floors. That's a lot. That's ambitious. And the timeline too. I mean, the gap even between when the deal would be closed and when construction would start, even that's a pretty big space. There's probably a healthy dose of, of skepticism that people should still have here. You know, I I think that there's, there's not reason to say, oh, well, this is never going to happen, but you know, there's still some obstacles they got to clear. I mean, finding the financing to to do all this, the equity, uh, just raising money to do this is is not necessarily going to be easy these days. Um, construction costs are are up, uh, and so it may be even more expensive than they they think. Obviously, it takes longer to get stuff done um, in terms of getting materials these days. So. Uh, you know, how is the, the build out of all this and the timing? And, and, you know, we've seen Mike Reschke, who's been around again, you know, 40 years in this market and has done some really high profile projects. He's also had projects that have taken way longer than he had hoped to. You know, he, he bought in 2006, he bought this old, uh, um, old office building that was mostly vacant on LaSalle street at 11 South LaSalle with this idea of turning it into a luxury hotel and it couldn't really get going for a couple of years. Then the uh, great financial crisis hit. And then he eventually found, you know, got the, he kind of pivoted and eventually got a construction loan and finally opened it in 2015. So 2006 to 2015, I mean, that that's probably an extreme case. But, you know, some of these things take longer than anticipated, especially when they are ambitious like this. So I, I don't know. I, I think that you know, is this all going to be done by 2024 or is there going to, you know, is, would there be some delay to it? How does that affect the state? How does that affect the whole sale and the negotiation of the sale in the next few months? We're going to see, but, um, there's, uh, there's still, there's still some hurdles to clear before this is a finalized done deal. Yeah. A lot of outstanding questions. All right. Well, now is the time where we move to three stories, not on your beat that caught your attention. Who would like to start? Fire away, Allie. I, I've been talking too much. Mine are all over the board. That's the best kind. I know. The first one um, is just sad. Just the the fallout from these storms that, you know, the, the tornadoes that hit Kentucky and um, like on my beat, I've been 
following along the discussion about the Amazon warehouse, you know, in Southern Illinois that collapsed and there were six people inside. And there just seems to be more that keeps coming out about what happened there. So I've been following that, but also just everything else. Um, so that's the sad one. The other one I saw that totally shocked me was Bruce Springsteen selling his music catalog. Yeah. The Sony Music Entertainment. It's a, for an estimated $500 million. I saw the headline and I immediately thought, that is not his music is worth so much more than five hundred million dollars. <laughs> number one, and I also wondered. I know this has been happening a lot. Um, a lot of people have been selling their music catalogs, and I just wonder if they're going to regret it. Like I wonder that too. You know, I don't know. Maybe they won't. Maybe their estate will, or their children will, or whatever. But uh, it just seems it just seems so final, especially when you're seeing like Taylor Swift do things right now, where she's like re-releasing music so that she can take ownership of the stuff she put out when she was younger um, and felt like she was sort of taken advantage of. So it's kind of interesting to see the dynamic there. Yeah. Like, like when David Bowie's catalog sold in like August or September, you're like, okay, that makes sense. He's deceased. Right. His estate sold it. That's a final decision. But when you're still alive and you're even still playing shows, it seems like, well. Yeah. Especially like, I mean, Bruce Springsteen has been doing, you know, musicals and like reinventing his music or representing it. Um, so I don't know. How do you value that too? How do you value? I mean, that's such a... Well, so that's the other thing, right? Like I've covered tech before and I've seen valuations for small companies much higher than that, you know? And it, as the Theranos trial is going on right now, it just makes me think about like the value of companies versus the value of Bruce Springsteen's music. And it's just interesting. I don't know. That's where my mind went with it. <laughs> He's one of those artists, though, that people either love him or hate him. Who hates who hates Bruce Springsteen? Do people hate him? I feel like people are very polarized around Bruce Springsteen. So like when that story first came up, a lot of people on Twitter were like, meh, whatever, should be a dollar. And some people are like, oh, it should be double that. It was fascinating, the reactions. It, it is crazy. I mean, not that I have any idea how much music should be valued or even understand that, but <laughs> how do you do that? How do you put a number on it? I'm officially making this call. I would like that person on the podcast, please. If you are the person that appraises music, please show up. I need to interview you because I have, we've got questions. Please sit, we've sit got before questions. the panel of the three of us, please. <laughs> All right. Your third story. <laughs> so my third one um, is just the starting to follow all the ramp up to the Winter Olympics, which every time I remember that the Winter Olympics are happening, I'm shocked because we just had the Summer Olympics. Um, but the New York Times like posted a kind of a fun profile on Instagram about um, snowboarder Chloe Kim, um, who was sort of a prodigy in 2018 and got famous real fast. And so they just sort of talked a little bit about how she struggled with that and um, she ended up breaking her ankle in early 2019, which she says was sort of a blessing in retrospect. She was able to step back from the sport. And it was one of those things. I, I find this interesting when Olympians say this sort of thing. Like, I don't know if I love the sport that I'm winning Olympic medals in. I don't know. But so many of them are so young that they have a lot to, you know, a lot to do left in life. So she went to college and she tried to do things. She just like wanted to detach her identity from being a snowboarder. Um, but it, she's kind of gearing up for a comeback and she went like over a year without snowboarding. And I thought it was interesting because the New York times, the phrasing they used was that she wasn't rusty. She was refreshed when she came back. And I sort of love those behind the scenes stories that everybody digs into in the months heading into Olympics. Definitely. All right, Danny, what you got? 
I was going to say we're we're getting into the uh, season of evaluating our our my for my fantasy Olympics league. Oh yeah, you are the fantasy Olympics guy. Yeah. Top draft prospect. So <laughs> that's I'm going to be reading up a lot a lot more about that soon. Can't wait. There's a story from um, Sportico, uh, which is a really a pretty fast growing sports business site that's actually put out some great content. It was all about the business of uh, realtors that are selling homes for college coaches that. Uh, the the turnover you know in college sports among head coaches in football and basketball is you know especially in football is is uh, quite frequent and there's a lot of money that's in play here and uh, and a lot of coaching staffs that have to show up uh, in these college towns and they'll be you know looking for really really cool houses these are like the luxury housing market in college towns they talked about how these realtors have made this sort of niche market. That's fascinating. That's one of those stories that I'm like jealous of. Why didn't I think of that? The other two, uh, I relate to them through having little kids. Bloomberg had a story about how fast sports betting is growing. And they actually had some really great visualizations, graphics showing uh, just how much gambling has spiked nationwide since sports came back from the pandemic break. And they actually had a projection from Goldman Sachs that said sports betting nationwide will, uh, at least online sports betting will jump from nationwide uh, from about a little less, little less than one billion dollars in revenue for these outlets that offer it uh, this year to thirty-nine billion dollars in just over a decade. This makes me think about teaching my two little boys, who are five and two, about sports and why I love them and what's great about them. You you start to think about how over the next decade, you know, you wonder how like sports betting, betting in general, which is now so in your face when you're watching sports, is going to kind of shape their view of sports. You know, in ways that I never experienced, and and I just kind of wonder how they will see the idea of being a fan versus rooting for your bet to pay off. Because I just I think that's you know not to say that you can't have a bit of both in your life, but when it sort of your formative sports fandom years, I just think that's gonna it makes me a little sad. But I also think that you know it's just gonna be interesting to see how they view this idea of gambling as they start to in the years ahead you know, become more interested in sports because I'm sure they will because I watch way too much of it. So that's interesting. Um, don't they say don't they say that when you're betting on sports, the key is to put your fanship aside and not just bet on the players and the teams that you like. I feel like this whole generation that's come coming up will maybe be good at that. Sure. I mean, <laughs> like they'll, they'll have the differentiation. Right. I mean, but it's sad when you just think about you know, the fandom, like pure fandom and following and being part of a larger community of fans of a team that, you know, how passionate are you about it? I don't know. I just think it's a great thing to have that. But I feel like this is an op-ed you need to yeah. write. <laughs> Maybe. Right? I mean, this you is... Should. Yeah, because it is sad. It's an interesting piece. I mean, that would be a really interesting thing piece. I think a lot of people would... Uh, I don't know that a lot of people are stopping to consider what is the nature of fanship and how will that change once you're putting money on it. And then enter, like, lay that over this idea of, like, parenting and teaching your kids about sports and how it might be different for them. I challenge you to write that piece. Look, I mean, it's not new. Like, fantasy sports for decades now has been a, a thing. Right. So people who have done fantasy sports uh, and are big fans of sports, they have, you know, maybe it's been, you know, maybe gambling's a bigger part of their, their view of sports now. But they at least had the experience you know, most people of having that more pure experience of sports when they were kind of 
in their formative fan years, which that's that's the big thing. Is like I don't know I, these these kids. They aren't going to really know that. They aren't going to know a time where the coverage of your team was not half or more than half about you know the over under or you know uh, uh, if someone's you know if someone's going to cover in garbage time. I don't know. It, I, these these are just. Um, it made me think about that to, uh, and right. uh, as I indoctrinate my kids with my fandom of my teams. Um, and uh, the the other one, uh, again, involving parenting, which I just I read and was with great interest, uh, was uh, we had a story on our website about uh, the shortage of vaccinated nannies um, and how difficult that is to uh, right now. I mean you know, how difficult it is period to find, you know, good childcare that's reliable and, and, and high quality, but also now it's sort of it, the shrink, the, the shrinking pie of also those that are also vaccinated and how a lot of these, you know, the story was talking about these, you know, groups that place, uh, childcare workers and, and nannies, um, are saying, look, there's, this is a really tough time. You have to, you know, pay a lot more to get, to get them, or sometimes you just can't. And, uh, our, our kids are both in daycare and, uh, I just, uh, you know, this is, I'm it, it never struck a nerve of course, until you have kids in daycare. But when you see how, how crucial these people are who watch our children, you know, how crucial they are to their development, you just get more passionate about like, you know, how lucky you are when you do have someone that is cons- like a consistent presence in kids' lives and how hard it is to actually find that. And we see the turnover at our own daycare and, you know, you can't blame them. And it's, it's, uh, it's a very difficult job that is, you know, drastically underpaid. And I think parents try to do their best to make that right. But, um, it's just, it's a really tough, tough time that obviously has like this whole childcare issue has, you know, huge ramifications for the workplace overall, especially as more people potentially go back to offices more frequently, but it's, um, I just having little kids and see, you know, it's like, I I'm constantly over the top about trying to tell our the teachers at our daycare about how important they are to me. You know, it's like, you know, cause you, you want to do whatever you can and obviously you try to, you know, uh, you know, make sure that you're telling them and, 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 and showing them that you are really, uh, how, how valuable they are to you. And I just think that it seems like a thing that a lot of people that I talk to, at least who have little kids are experiencing right now. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I thought that was an interesting piece too. All right, my turn, I guess. So I thought that Times piece about Elon Musk being the person of the year was very, uh, let's use the word compelling. I don't know if you read it. (laughs) I somehow missed that. Well, so let me just give you a couple of little snippets. Time at one point said that that they gave Musk this recognition uh, for his, quote, dreams of Mars as he bestrides Earth, square-jawed and in- indomitable. Square-jawed. Wow. That's a lot. That's that's some bold language there. Um, they also said in this, um, the richest man in the world does not own a house and has recently been selling off his fortune. He tosses satellites into orbit and harnesses the sun. He drives a car he created that uses no gas and barely needs a driver. With a flick of his finger, the stock market soars or swoons. <laughs> wow that's really bold language <laughs> like i mean look no doubt the man has accomplished a lot of things he's doing compelling things he is a compelling person but i've i don't know that i've ever read a profile that just swooned quite that hard over the person they were writing about 
Was the author a man? Let me go check. Um, drum roll. I ask because I have a few friends that are, you know, they, they play the online dating game and they run into a lot of Elon Musk fanatics. It is actually written by three people. Two have male names. One has a female name. And the thing to remember about the time person of the year, like Hitler has been acknowledged on the cover of Time Magazine, right? So it's not, <laughs> right. it's not necessarily like this is the best person in the world this year. It is like, here is the compelling person that you heard a lot about this year. Yes. I love how controversial they always are, honestly. Always. <laughs> always. And it's like, it's a magazine cover and, and it's yes. whatever. But also like once I saw Square Jawed, I was like, oh, okay, all right. Is that what we're doing? Really? Okay. <laughs> um, other things on my radar. Um, I, uh, there was a piece in CNN about how realtors are using TikTok to really astonishing levels of success of how they were, how, and there was some uh, survey data in there about how many people, I think it was a Zillow survey of how many people would be willing to buy a property site unseen if it met, if it meant certain benchmarks that they want, or like a certain style, like the mid-century modern house or things like that. It was just really interesting of the state of home buying right now. Um, I, I sent it Dennis Rodkin's way and I'm, I'm awaiting his comment on it. I'm sure there'll be. Many. Dennis is, Dennis is big on TikTok, as we all know. I've been trying to get that guy on Instagram for <laughs> ages, ages. He, he would be very compelling on Instagram. <laughs> Let's get Instagram first. He probably is just under some, you know, pseudonym. It's just, that's he's right. Just, he's he's just like us. watching all of us do things. He's a, he's secretly an, an, uh, like an influencer. We just don't know it <laughs> doing something else. <laughs> um, and then the third story, this is kind of a sweet story. There was a Canadian library and a librarian discovered a book in her library, correctly shelved according to the Dewey Decimal System, but inside it is a, it's carved out and there's a bunch of handmade zines in it. And so she found this secret zine library inside of her library and then set about tracking down the people who participated in it. And it's such a fascinating story. It was very, very interesting. It was in, uh, I don't remember the city in Canada, but it was, it kind of came across my newsfeed and I thought, what an what a brilliant idea and what a happy, sweet little story in the middle of, you know, times that are not always happy and sweet, right? I love that. So that's what I got. That's fascinating. And now I feel like I, we need to hide things in library books everywhere just to bring people joy. I swear I watched a preview on Netflix about some movie that basically had that same premise. Oh. I don't remember what it was called. I just spent a lot of time watching Netflix previews. It's a hobby. We, and it's, I mean, you can't not watch them because you turn on Netflix and they start. <laughs> Right. You have no choice. Yeah. <laughs> we just need more. We need more awareness of the Dewey Decimal System. That's what we need. Yeah, that's true. That's clearly that's clearly something that is going to be lost. Let's die on that hill. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, let's go totally fight that battle. Let's start a protest. There'll be three of us there. It'll be good. <laughs> we demand an awareness of the Dewey Decimal System. Oh, boy. I've taken it off the rails today. All right. Well, um, thank you both. We will all talk soon. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Coming up with an uptick in cases due to the Omicron COVID variant, Citadel, among the earliest hedge funds to require workers to return to the office earlier in the pandemic, is now among asset managers telling staff they can work remotely, at least for the next several weeks. We'll talk about that and more right after this. The Greater Chicago Food Depository has never faced a need so great. Food insecurity is still above pre-pandemic levels and children are particularly at risk. Together, the Food Depository and its network of community partners can help every family in need. 
and they're taking on the root causes of hunger, investing in local partnerships, providing job training, and bringing food, dignity, and hope to our neighbors. Learn more at chicagosfoodbank.org. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Many restaurants throughout Chicago have temporarily closed to deal with breakthrough COVID-19 cases among staff members, creating yet another necessary pivot in the hospitality industry as the pandemic nears its two-year mark. As Ali Marathi reports, the closures look different than they did in the pandemic's early days. Then a positive result among staffers meant a full two weeks of quarantine for everybody. But now restaurant operators are hoping to stay closed only a few days, just long enough to get everyone tested. Still, the cases have restaurant operators reassessing protocols. As Chicago case counts rise once again, the hospitality industry is trying to figure out a way to prevent business interruptions while keeping workers and customers safe. Restaurants in Miami, New York, and across the nation are also temporarily closing for positive cases, too. That according to Sam Toya, president and CEO of the Illinois Restaurant Association, who told Cranes, quote, we're going to see more of this, not just in Chicago, but throughout the nation. Further, a tight labor market makes the stakes even higher. For example, if a restaurant is understaffed, having one or two workers out sick could cause the whole operation to close. As of Friday, the seven-day average COVID case count in Chicago was 1,035, according to city data. And that's the highest it's been since early this year when vaccines were just beginning to roll out. The Omicron variant, which is believed to spread more easily, has been detected in Chicago and suburban Cook County. Airbus claimed a second major victory over Chicago-based Boeing in 24 hours on Thursday after Air France KLM handed the European plane maker an order worth more than $10 billion at list prices. The carrier agreed to buy 100 A320neo and A321neo single-aisle aircraft in a blow for Boeing's rival 737 MAX aircraft following a similar win at Australia's Qantas Airways. And the Airbus models will also displace older Boeing jets at both carriers. Further, the Air France KLM deal includes purchase rights for an additional 60 narrow-body planes and an outline deal for four A350 freighters plus four options, expanding the market for the new cargo plane after Singapore Airlines ordered seven this week. Airbus had 368 net orders at the end of November, compared with 457 at Boeing, which is regaining some momentum lost during the grounding of the 737 MAX. But the European firm is doing better on deliveries, with 518 planes delivered versus just 302 from Boeing. Dealership tech company Cars.com promoted Doug Miller to the role of president and chief commercial officer to start January 1st, assuming the number two position at the Chicago-based company behind CEO Alex Vetter. The company said last week in a regulatory filing that Miller has been the company's chief revenue officer since August of 2018. In his new role, Miller will earn a base salary of $500,000 and receive an annual performance bonus target of 110% of his base salary. That also according to the regulatory filing. Cars.com operates a vehicle listings marketplace and provides dealership websites and other software tools. Citadel Blackstone and Millennium Management are among asset managers telling staff that they may once again work remotely, at least for the next several weeks, in response to the latest spike of COVID cases. 
But Ken Griffin's Citadel, among the earliest hedge funds to require staff to return to the office earlier in the pandemic, isn't requiring that people work remotely. That according to a spokesperson for the company. That guidance also applies to Griffin's market-making operation, Citadel Securities. Blackstone, the world's biggest alternative asset manager, told its U.S. workers that they can work from home for the rest of the year, as did rival Carlyle Group. That according to spokespeople for both private equity firms. Millennium reportedly told staff on Wednesday that they can work remotely through January 7th. That according to Bloomberg, who cited a person familiar with the matter. Those who choose to enter the office will be required to undergo daily COVID testing. At the end of November, Two Sigma Investments told workers that it was delaying its return to office mandate until the end of the first quarter. That also, according to Bloomberg, citing a person familiar with that firm who said that Two Sigma was anticipating a surge in cases after the holidays and noting that the emergence of the new Omicron variant factored into its decision. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to both of the guests in today's episode, Crane's reporters Ali Marathi and Danny Ecker. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to find your audio on demand. And remember to rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time. I'm A.D. Quigg, host of The Crane's podcast, A.D. Q&A. This week, I sit down with Assessor Fritz Kagey to talk about the impact his assessments have had on homeowners and big businesses, his re-election pitch, and why he's not getting tangled up in elections for the Board of Review, a body that's disagreed with a number of his assessments. Let you know, the commissioners running for that body be accountable to the public, uh, but don't have the assessor get involved in, in that choice.